This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Bill Parslow and to Linz, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 449 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing season three of Star Trek Discovery. And this will include spoilers for every episode of the show, so just be aware of that. And we discussed seasons one and two back in episodes 285 and 364, so definitely check those out if you miss them. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 24th appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and his short story Late Train appeared in the February 2019 issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Then next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, making her 20th appearance on the show. She's a trans-supporting Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes a medium and lives in Connecticut with a Renaissance engineer in a small zoo. She considers Star Trek to be her third and best parent. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Always happy to be here. And also joining us today is Christopher M. Savasco, making his 11th appearance on the show. He's the former editor of Paradox Magazine, and his short fiction appears in magazines such as Nightmare and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. He's also written 19 Dungeons & Dragons supplements, including the best-selling Philosial's Ultimate Guide to Poison, which are available through the DMs Guild website. He's currently seeking representation for the first book in an alternate history trilogy with a dash of magic, as well as three other historical novels. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Very happy to be back. Okay, so let's start off with Anthony. So, Anthony, what were your initial impressions of season three of Star Trek Discovery? Um, I was very impressed. Um, I had uh, sort of been holding off on uh watching the third season until most of it was out and i kind of figured i'd i'd binge it um and because i didn't have an ongoing cvs all access subscription um and i remembered you know the basic outline of of season two and the fact that they jumped into the future so i was very curious about what that was going to look like um because we've you know i think there was a a short uh short track that took place in this time period, but otherwise it's a future that we haven't really seen before. And I remember particularly those first two episodes of the season, I was really impressed with, first of all, just the locations they used. I think this is the first time, one of the first times they've shot outside uh, the United States and, or outside North America and went to Iceland. And there's these like beautiful, um, lakes where a lot of the the first uh two episodes take place and um which seems like a, a relatively small thing but because star trek particularly tv star trek to me is so tied to these la locate mostly la locations that are made to look like alien worlds it was just seeing something that that to me was so different in a star trek context did a lot of work to make me believe that we were in a far future um 
And overall, I, I thought they did a really great job of setting up um, some really compelling mysteries around this idea called the burn, which is made, uh, you know, fed, the Federation has kind of fallen apart. Warp speed, I guess, still exists, but it's much more difficult than it used to be. And uh, the idea of all these different civilizations that we sort of, or many of them we recognize from previous Star Trek series, but now they are another thousand years on from where we've seen in the, um, in the older series. I mean, it, it, there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief where I sort of imagine that the changes would be more dramatic in that span of time. It, it sort of feels like maybe more like a few hundred years have passed than really a thousand. But just the fact that we are in a different future than any we've seen before uh, in any other Star Trek show, that felt very real and convincing to me. Yeah, I was definitely looking forward to seeing Star Trek go into the future, as I've said. And when they first announced this show, Discovery, and they're like, oh, it's going to take place, you know, before the original series. I was like, oh, do we really need to see this? I mean, I'm I'm getting really kind of tired of prequels and, you yeah. know, all this kind of stuff. And sort of my reaction to season one is I thought it was pretty good, not amazing. And then season two, I thought was quite good. But then I was actually really excited by the prospect that, okay, they're jumping a thousand years into the future and we're going to see something new. Um, so let's get Sarah in here. Sarah, what, what were kind of your initial impressions going into season three? I loved it. It, it was great. I love that they continue to make bold choices. They've been doing that since season one. They've been very you know, clear about how uh, they are making it so much their own and using Star Trek canon as they see fit, which is quite literally the job of the writers. You know, they, they kind of have to walk this delicate line between paying homage without creating a copy of a copy. And we saw Star Trek, you know, before the Kelvin years, before the, you know, the J.J. Abram reboot and all of that, you know, Star Trek was sort of becoming a copy of itself over and over again. It sort of started with Voyager and was definitely in full, you know, Dolly the Sheep mode by the time Enterprise <laughs> came around. I'm sorry. But, you know, and and one of the reasons, I think, is that it became sort of bogged down by its own canon. It became bogged down by, we have to make, you know, you can make a show like this if you make it for the fans. At some point, you're actually just going to make this very sort of incestuous thing. And I think that you have to break rules and you have to do new things and you have to break canon um, and be adventurous about it in order to and bring people in who have absolutely no experience with Star Trek. There are still Star Trek fans who are so angry that there are producers and writers working on Star Trek who it didn't grow up with the series. Well, you know, that's fine. <laughs> They're writers. They, they can still do their jobs. They can still do research. They can still listen to the oodles of people that are hired to help them with that research, whose only job on the show is to provide the Star Trek canon. And so I love that, you know, that they are continuing to make bold choices and continuing to sort of, you know, break the rules. Yeah. And so as Anthony was saying, you know, yeah, so we're a thousand years in the future and um, there was this big disaster called the burn, which basically caused a disaster related to dilithium, which is sort of the, I don't know, the energy source that the warp drives use. And so any ship that was at warp at a particular moment, they all blew up. And now the the Federation is all kind of 
broken up and they can't contact different parts of it because they don't have ships that can go fast enough. And, um, and so it's kind of like the dark ages. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I, um, you know, we had speculated in our last conversation that maybe there were, there would be some sort of evil federation in this future, uh, which, you know, turns out not to be the case. Um, but so Chris, what did you think about this, this future federation that we got? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I think the seasons have been getting progressively stronger. I mean, I, I definitely enjoyed season one, but I mean, I think, you know, season three was the strongest. Um, uh, just to quickly, before I give you some of my general impressions to, to build on what Anthony was saying and what you were just talking about with the burn in a way, I, I, I was wondering myself, you know, why there hadn't been more change over a thousand year period. But at the same time, I kind of feel like the burn was a neat way for the writers to kind of explain that because since you have these cultures that were basically living in isolation rather than being exposed to a galaxy of influences and whatnot, they kind of all started to turn inward a little bit. And, uh, you know, there wasn't as much opportunity for cross pollination with other cultures and other technologies for a lot of them. Um, uh, for some of them where there was more of that, like with the Balkans and the uh, Romulans, you definitely saw a radically changed culture there, uh, at least on a, on a sort of a, you know, social and political level, how it was set up. Um, so I, I think in some ways the burn allowed them to get away with that uh, in, in, a bit. Um, but just getting back to my general impressions. Yeah. I mean, I, like I think most people were, I was blown away by the first two episodes in particular visually uh, the, the the writing, the the excitement of seeing all this new stuff, and um, and I think that while they definitely have done a fantastic job forging a new path forward uh, in terms of the ideas and and everything that they're presenting, I do think that they did a, a perfectly fine job as well with fan service. Uh, you know, there were so many call outs in this show to like every previous iteration, you know, uh, everything from the the temporal cold war and the, you know, uh, different races and species that we had seen in earlier, you know, shows like, uh, I can't recall it now, but the Mourn's species from Deep Space Nine, like you see him, you know, one of, one of his, his, uh, his species early on. I mean, there's all the, this stuff so that it, it, it seems like you're watching Star Trek for sure. But, um, it's also really exciting to see all the different new directions they're taking it in. And I also think they've done a great job of remaining true to some of the original, um, I guess, uh, intents of, you know, of the show, which are to tackle, uh, you know, social issues and to tackle sort of sociopolitical, uh, you know, uh, issues of the day and things like that. And, and they continue to do that and push the, the envelope in directions that I, I, I think has been, uh, fantastic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess you could say with the technology that maybe it just gets to a certain point and it just doesn't, you know, there's not much else left to invent. Um, I mean, we do have, I'm trying to think what's new. We have the personal transporters. So the crew members, they can just use their um, badges to to transport around. You have like, um, matter printers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Pro- programmable matter. Programmable we have. matter. Um, and then the, uh, what are they called? The nacelles or something? The, the warp generators, the, yeah. you know, the tubular shapes things are, are now not connected to the ship. Um, you have so the nanite of- gel or whatever it was that they used to, you know, uh, connect Stamets to the mushroom drive. 
Yeah. But so, I don't know, nothing that major, uh, you know, like Anthony's saying, for a thousand years. I mean, it's one of the problems, really, with creating a far future Star Trek and something that people said from, you know, uh, something that was going on a lot in the fan forums about Star Trek Discovery season one and two is, well, why can't we have the future? Why can't we have the far future? We've already had this. We've already, why can't we continue to build on it? And from a writing perspective, the reason is so blatantly obvious that you can only do so much from existing knowledge that at a certain point it becomes magical to the point of ridiculousness. You just, you, you can't, uh, you know, you know, stretch it that far. And Star Trek has always, you know, thankfully never been uh, bound by, by it being hard sci-fi. It's never been hard sci-fi. It never will be. And, you know, a couple of people have actually complained, well, why isn't Star Trek more like the expanse? Because they are completely different shows and they would one, you know, or the other would lose something if they were more the same. So, you know, I think that people who keep demanding new, 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 new aren't really thinking about how hard it would actually be for the writers to consistently create a Star Trek that it was always 500 years past the other one without it being completely ridiculous. Did anyone say, Sarah, on these message boards, anything specific they would want to see in terms of new technology or, or anything no, that's the, the thing. Like, I, I would expect that, you know, these complaints would be coupled with they could do this or they could do that or they could do this. But these people never have ideas themselves about what <laughs> they could plausibly do. Yeah, I, I mean, it seems to me you would be looking at things like, you know, like humanity is all the Borg or like, you know, like, like really, really changing how human society is is based, you know, human biology and human society at, at some, you know fundamental level that would make it hard to relate to the characters yeah i mean yeah and, and like it's star trek you know you tune in because you expect to see a certain thing at some level you know like if it were too too different you know you'd be like wait this isn't star trek what did they do to my star trek <laughs> um but yeah so everyone had pretty positive impressions of the first couple episodes it sounds like yeah um, and there's a lot going on in this, uh, season. I mean, there's 13 episodes. Um, I watched them all like in the last day and a half. So my brain is <laughs> scrambled right now. Um, but I don't know. Is there anything, um, anything that sticks out to people from say the first, I don't know, the first half of the season or so. One thing that struck me was that as once, you know, you get three, four five episodes in there is a certain pattern that the stories all follow, which is, I think, you know, in, in many ways, a very kind of classic Star Trek template, but that the way that um, Discovery seems to interact with these, you know, thousand year on societies, usually it'll show up and the people will be initially hostile and they'll say, oh, you don't understand how bad things have gotten and then um, it will be sort of recruited into some sort of mission or doing some sort of thing for this society. And then by the end of it, everyone will be like, oh, yeah, no, like Discovery is great. The Federation is great. <laughs> or when they do encounter, finally, they encounter the Federation and the Federation is initially a little or Starfleet is a little initially suspicious of them and then sort of warms to them quickly. And I didn't mind that exactly, but it did start to feel a little bit formulaic. And, and I guess that, that it tied into a general flaw that I, I feel with discovery that um, 
sometimes the relationships feel a little too easy. Like they go from, oh, I don't know you or I don't trust you to you're my best friend really quickly. And and again, I mean, I think that's true of, of all the Star Trek shows, but I think particularly because Discovery is more serialized than uh, older Star Trek, it, it feels more, the, the flaw, that kind of flaw feels more noticeable that I would expect some of these conflicts and the building of trust or the erosion of trust to extend for, for longer than it does. And it feels like, you know, people are kind of get on board with, with the program and get on board with, with Michael and, and with Discovery fairly quickly. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, so, so sort of the, yeah, kind of the template for this show, for the season is that, you know, the uh, Starfleet has kind of fallen into disarray because of this um, you know, technological disaster and the Discovery ship comes in and they have this spore drive uh, that can, that enables them to basically uh, transport themselves anywhere. And so now this is like, you know, this new hope for reassembling uh, the Federation and, I mean, I kind of liked that setup that, you know, because um, like I said, we had we had speculated, oh, maybe there's going to be an evil federation. But and then w- once we meet the federation, um, you're initially like, oh, is this going to turn out to be an evil federation? And they're all totally screwed and they've walked into a trap. And w- once that didn't happen, I was kind of happy that that didn't happen. I was kind of like, oh, I actually kind of like it better that, um, you know, that Starfleet is kind of kind of on the ropes and kind of making compromises, but isn't just, you know, evil. And I like this idea that the the sweep of this show now is going to become, you know, putting, re- restoring Starfleet to its former glory. Um, I agree that it's kind of, you know, this is like, it's maybe too easy how, how much progress Discovery is able to make so quickly. But um, from a dramatic standpoint, I don't think you would want to have like, you know, six episodes about getting the Vulcans and um, <laughs> Romulans to, uh, you know, come to peace or whatever. But um, I don't know, Sarah, what do you think about that? What do you think about what Anthony's saying there? I totally bought it. I thought it was handled really well because, you know, it in in reality, when the when Discovery finally finds the Federation, the Federation is just sort of functionally mistrustful. And you understand that they are like that because they have been through a lot and they are in survival mode. Um, and I think it makes sense given what we know about the Emerald Chain, given what we know about the burn and the incredible uh, crippling that that would have been to the Federation and the ways that they would have needed to change. Um, and even the sort of, you know, whatever it's called on Earth, the United Earth Defense or whatever it is, uh, all of that made perfect sense to me in in context of what they were trying to say has happened to these people. Uh, and even Vance, a character that I absolutely loved, um, you have somebody who's sort of stern and makes it very clear to them, like, look, this is exactly what you would do if our positions were reversed, which they pretty much agreed with. Um, so I felt like it was more like they started out with this functional, necessary uh, mistrust, and they blossomed into okay, you are who you say you are, uh, and you bring a unique perspective because you're from a different point in time with different technology and also have, you know, just your crew has a completely different way of seeing this problem that to you is still fresh and horrifying. Whereas the Federation had just pretty much decided that 
they were okay not really having a solution a long time ago, which is very believable of a bureaucracy. And I remember seeing on Twitter people saying, well, you know, Vance is going to turn out to be evil. You watch and everything. And it's like, I never believed that because why would they really repeat themselves? Like they, they did that with Lorca in season one. And I didn't, I really didn't see Discovery's writers sort of trying to pull a fast one like that again, or trying to do that. They might do it in the next season, but uh, I felt like it was too soon for them to pull that out of their trick bag again. In some ways, I kind of feel like it's, it is that, um, that sort of uh, those personal connections and stuff that are highlighted throughout the show that in a way, even though they don't, they don't, necessarily uh connect all the dots as to how the federation and these various cultures they come across eventually come to bond and trust each other they almost are using the sort of interpersonal relationships as a little microcosm of that and as a stand-in for for doing that work i mean you see things like books uh evolving relationship not only with burnham but with the federation as sort of like a representative individual for all of these people who are now rediscovering the Federation. And you see things like, um, you know, Adira's uh, evolving relationship with, with, uh, with uh, Stamets and with Burnham and with the Federation in general. And, and, and again, I think the, they spent so much time. It did such a fantastic job developing these personal relationships that I, I, I was more willing to forgive and forget that they didn't necessarily do that on the kind of, uh, you know, um, political level with the, with these other cultures. It's just, you sort of like, you're distracted enough by seeing it happen on the individual level that it, it, it sort of stands in for that in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I really liked, I mean, especially thinking back to season one, which I thought was kind of wonky in a lot of ways. Like I really like felt like this crew, like all these actors have really settled into their roles. And I, I really believe the, that this is a group of people who all care about each other and work well together. And I think that that's what really was my favorite thing about this season was just li- living with these characters who have, have become much better developed and um, whose relationships seem very real. Um, I do think that, I, I guess the things that, you know, sort of didn't work as well for me. And these are pretty minor things, but I, I agree. I forget who was saying, but like when Burnham first meets Book, um, who's this, he's this kind of um, um, courier, he's called, you know, it's like sort of like a, a, you know, a mercenary kind of, uh, or, tra- you know, he transports stuff for hire. And they initially, they uh, initially have this like hand-to-hand combat thing. And I'm like, I know this is a good guy. I know like they're going to become friends. Like I don't, I know like very quickly in retrospect that this combat thing is going to seem completely pointless and out of character. Can we just like skip this and just get, get <laughs> on with the story, you know? And um, cause it's such, such a sort of Hollywood thing where the characters, they like fight physically when they first meet each other for no particular reason and then become friends. And so there were like things like that, which were like a little bit off, but um but overall, like I just, I just really liked the character dynamics, um, you know, throughout the throughout the season of the of the Discovery crew. Um, Definitely, I, I also think. I mean, in some ways, they did they did such a good job with with that, and and they were trying to, as we were saying earlier, trying to do just so much in general this season in only thirteen episodes that you know inevitably there's going to be certain things that fall through the cracks, and and one of the things 
to me was some of the kind of secondary characters are just sort of blank slates to me. I mean, the entire bridge crew almost yeah. with one with one or two exceptions um, are just sort of faces that like I can't even necessarily remember names or, you know, what's their background again or what, you know, uh, be, because they're just sort of like, and I understand it's the bridge crew. They, they're not the, the main focus of the of the storylines, but they seem like they're supposed to be because, you know, they, they, there's a lot of camera lingering on them. And it's like we're supposed to be somehow connecting with them. But I, I feel like a lot of them are blank slates. And I also think the same is true. You know, again, they couldn't do everything in this season. But other than Vance, I feel like the entire rest of sort of Starfleet Command is is just a a a blank slate. I mean, there, you, you meet one or two others and you see some people standing in the background, but it's like, is he just running this thing all by himself? <laughs> you know, you, you just don't get the sense, like, are there other admirals around? I mean, they mention one or two maybe, but it, and I understand it's a much shrunken version of the, of the Federation at this point. But again, there's so, some of that kind of blank room syndrome in terms of the characters, you know, beyond the, the, the main core storyline characters. Yeah, well, like the th- like I-, I got to know some of the bridge crew a little bit better this season, but like some of that was a little wonky to me too. Like the thing with like, like I think probably my least favorite moment was so so there's the the pilot the ship's pilot basically is, is this character Detmer, and there's this part where she just starts like they're they're like giving doing haikus, and she starts like giving this haiku about Stamets bleeding, and it's like so weird and over the top, and I I, I think the story is just meant to suggest that she's having PTSD or something yeah. from all that yeah. she's been through. But it seems like so it just seems so like over the top to me that um I, I, I assumed that at first she had been like taken over by an evil AI or something like that. Um but um yeah so I don't know like so so Anthony what do you think um about all those characters? You you thought they were working pretty well. Is there anything that stood out to you either good or bad? Yeah, I mean, I would say that overall, I, I do think that characterization is what Star Trek Discovery does best. And and to Chris's point, I, I definitely feel like in a lot of ways, the when I didn't necessarily buy the sort of larger plotting of how the Federation was coming together, or, you know, when as we get deeper into the season, we find out more about the burn and things like that. And, and I had maybe a little bit more reservations, but I always or almost always kind of felt invested in in the character relationships. And so that kind of pulled me through through the show a lot. I mean, I do agree that there's something um, it, it that there's like these different, almost like tiers of characters in the show. And so there's like a s- small collection of um, core discovery, like crew members who we all know and who like, I can remember their names, but like before we recorded this episode, uh, I was like going down like the character list because there are like all these bridge crew members who I don't actually can't always remember their names or much about their personalities, which is, I mean, I think a fairly normal thing that if we were to watch the original series or Next Generation, there'd be these extras standing on the back of the bridge and like, I don't know who that is or, you know, they'll and they'll might get redshirted anyway where the console will blow up and they'll it'll be somebody else in the next episode. What's a little bit harder about it is the fact that the relationships between the crew and not just the named crew or the sort of, you know, credited actors, but like this more extended crew is supposed to be so important. And like, they keep saying to each other um, how much they mean to each other. There is occasionally a feeling of, Oh, uh, well, I agree. I understand those relationships for about half the people on screen right now. And then the other half of the people you seem fine, but I don't really know much about you or what your relationship is with everyone else. 
Yeah. I mean, Sarah, what do you think about all this? Um, I mean, I think that it's, you know, again, it's something that we see in Star Trek over and over again. Like if you watch TOS for a single checkoff episode, for instance, you're going to be <laughs> disappointed. Um, you know, poor, like, and there were sort of main characters who were in every episode, but who never really got a specific episode to really give them much personality. Um, and that's been a tradition in Star Trek for pretty much in every series. Um, even with TNG, even, you know, a character like Riker, who's a, a relatively main character who had quite a few episodes that were only about him. There was really no character development between season one and season seven compared to say Data or Picard. Um, they really got the meat of those roles. And uh, it's a complaint that comes up now and then from the discovery haters on the forums because they kind of latch on to different reasons and they go back and forth between them. And one of their new reasons this season was, well, we never, why is it the Michael Burnham show? Why do we never see more episodes about Owo and more episodes about, you know, Reese and all of the other characters. Um, but I mean, this is a deliberate choice that they made to make Michael Burnham the main character from day one, from season one. Um, and I think it's a good decision in the long run, as much as I would love to have an episode about Owo. I think she's fascinating and beautiful. I would love to have, you know, more development among those minor characters, but not at the expense of what's happening to the main characters. So I think it's just one of those things that it's a good sign that you have a show where you want to see more. You want to see more about what's happening in the background. Oh, yeah. And and just don't get me wrong. I totally agree with what Sarah just said. I, I, I do think that they made the right call with the direction that they went. I, I think what, sure. makes, what, what makes it, I guess, sometimes stand out to me as like, oh, yeah, wait, what's up with them? It, it's almost more just the camera work because they, they they do linger on these other characters. Like we're supposed to be seeing some sort of emotional reaction they're having to something. And, and, and I'm just like, well, I don't know what's going on behind that face because I don't know anything about that person. And so I feel like it's, it's almost like they're suggesting to us that we should be getting some emotional resonance from these other characters, but you know, they, they, understandably they, they haven't given us the tools for doing that. And, and I'm glad they didn't like, like you said, I mean, I think they did such a great job developing the main ones that, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Well, and as for Detmer and that whole dinner scene, I think that, you know, one of the things I've said before that I love about this show is they don't just automatically assume that the bridge crew is always okay, the way that they did with previous uh, iterations of Star Trek. Um, and, you know, where you have people going through traumatic events and then at the pilot of the, you know, or the the uh, next episode there, everybody get press the reset button and goes back to square one. And with Detmer, I think that what they were trying to say in that episode uh, is that the injury that she had, the head injury happening in the same place in the same kind of situation as the Battle of Binary Stars uh, was sort of her reliving the trauma from the first uh, experience that she had. And I think that, you know, she, they kind of had to have that dinner table scene and it was an uncomfortable thing to watch. But I don't think it was unrealistic. I think that the, if they were, you know, they were trying to depict PTSD, um, they were trying to depict that this crew needed to be told that it's okay to not be okay right now. They, you know, had made this huge sacrifice. They went a thousand years into the future, 900 years, and nobody knows who they are. Nobody cares what they did. 
and the federation that they you know ostensibly were was part of a big part of what they were trying to save is decimated and it's it's just one depressing thing after another for these people and i think that they had to show that being the show that it is and you know i, I think it was uncomfortable to watch but it was sort of supposed to be I mean, I agree that they, it's good if they show that, show these things. I just feel like sometimes they're just kind of showing it in, in such a, um, blunt way. Like I, I thought the same thing when, um, um, when Saru is, is they're, they're, they're flying into the very dangerous nebula and, you know, and they're like shields are, and the shields are dropping like 10% per two, every two seconds or something. And Saru's like, no, we got to keep going. I want to see more Kelpians. And it just felt like, you know, it, it, it just felt like, like as, as an audience member that it's hitting me over the head with this rather than kind of letting me, you know, draw that conclusion on my own. Um, but I don't know how other people feel about that. But um, uh, Chris, what do you think about that? I mean... I definitely remember the scene that you mentioned, and I think it was one of the only times that I kind of felt like Saru was out of character. Um, I think there, again, I understand why they did it, but um, yeah, it, it felt like a bit of a false note to me. And I mean, Saru is just always so fantastic and the actor is so fantastic, um, you know, that whenever there is a sort of a misstep like that, I think it stands out more than it would uh, maybe with another character. Um, But, you know, he very quickly came to his senses. It's not like, you know, he, he, he went down fighting on that one. You know, they were able to kind of bring him back from the brink with just a few stern words. So in the end, it, 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 it wasn't too terrible to me. Yeah. And I think one of the things they were doing with that scene is throughout the third season, they were discussing leadership qualities and leadership styles and the differences between Saru's leadership and uh, Saru's potential for mistakes, which they haven't really shown us before. And they were showing us a little bit about that now. Um, You know, where are Saru's tender spots? Where, where might he fuck up the same way that, that, you know, Michael Burnham might fuck up? Uh, Where, where are Tilly's faults? And so I think that, you know, they've shown us different leadership styles from all of these characters throughout the season, because they're having a conversation uh, thematically about what makes a good leader. And at the end, I think all the characters realize that Michael Burnham is a natural born leader. Well, what I guess while, while we're on it, I'll just get my other big criticism out of the way, which was uh, I didn't like it when Michael Burnham like goes rogue again and disobeys orders and and everything. Um, And I thought that it would have been, you know, and especially like leaving the ship without telling anyone and, you know, leaving the first officer slot um, unoccupied and all this stuff. And I could understand her, um, you know, feeling like she had to go save book, but I would have rather that she just told Saru that and said, you know, you can, um, I'm going, I'm resigning. If I have to, you can like court martial me when I get back, if you have to, but I'm, I, this is something I have to do rather than just kind of like, you know, slipping out in the middle of the night kind of thing. Um, so, so Anthony, what do you think about that? I had, I mean, a similarly hard time with that decision because I mean, just as, I mean, I had a really hard time watching the first episode of discovery where she, you know, basically, uh, 
mutinies and and but because she thinks she's doing the right thing and in some ways it felt like kind of a repeat of that mistake i think the so it was difficult because it just a lot of i think the first half of this season or so involves michael kind of clashing with um the new starfleet and in some cases like making decisions that i really didn't agree with but i thought the show actually did a good job of establishing why that was the case and the fact that she I think one of the things we haven't mentioned about the plot is that um, then Michael, because she's separate from Discovery when they go into the future, she actually arrives a year earlier and I think um, has has really been changed by that experience, has also just, I mean, I think in some ways it brought out kind of who she was, um, elements of her personality well, that we haven't has, seen has in Has been while. kind of living as a freewheeling robot yes. for a year. Right, exactly. Um, and I think that to me, like all of those disagreements, even though I didn't, you know, they kind of made me a little bit uncomfortable and I was kind of like, no, Michael, don't do this. Um, it also felt to me like a lot of those decisions had been sort of set up properly by the show that I, I found them dramatically believable. Um, and, and so that when she left, I mean, I understand that like, yeah, there's definitely a part of my brain that said, hmm, maybe this would be better. And, and if it was just sort of a different Star Trek show, like you would see her like really trying to to get the crew to help her out on this mission and they would maybe decide together to go or they she would get permission from the admiral and um you know just not telling anyone and and when Tilly said you know tell Saru like Michael has put you in this impossible situation and she later, later tells Michael you put me in this impossible situation I think in both cases those comments are completely justified um but I also understand that from Michael's perspective she felt that partly because discovery was still trying to reestablish itself with the Starfleet and get, um, get Starfleet to trust them that she knows she's that if, if it seems like they approved of this, that she could be doing real damage to the reputation versus if she doesn't tell anyone and they can all honestly say, we had no idea that Michael was going to do this, then she can be punished. And that doesn't necessarily affect Saru's uh, standing within Starfleet. And so in that sense, it like the decision made sense to me, even if I didn't necessarily think it was the best one. Yeah. What did people think overall of the new characters this season? So we've got, um, book, uh, we mentioned Admiral Vance. We have, um, Adira, uh, we have Kovic played by David Cronenberg. I don't know if people know that. Um, so, so how about Chris? What did you think of, uh, the new characters this season? I thoroughly enjoyed all of them. I I think they, they were uniformly strong. I I mean, it's interesting. The uh, David Cronenberg's character is still sort of, I think intentionally a bit of an enigma. Like I'm not even sure what his role is there. Um, But, you know, I mean, he, he seems like maybe he's some sort of a, a lingering leftover of like section 31 or something. I, I don't know what, what he's really doing there, but um, he's interesting and I enjoyed watching him on screen. So I don't know too much about him as a character, but he definitely presented some interesting sort of questions and mysteries that I'd like to see resolved at some point. Um, and, and it was wonderful watching him sort of have back and forth with um, Georgiou. Uh, the, the, those scenes were very entertaining. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think Vance and book and Adira, all incredibly strong characters. Um, Book is great to me, mostly because of his relationship with um, uh, Burnham. I mean, I I think that they did a really great job developing their 
friendship and burgeoning romance and and camaraderie as as you know uh you know s- fellow soldiers and whatnot but um it to me one of my least favorite parts of the whole series uh season rather was the one episode that revolved around book going back to his i don't know was it his planet or his brother's planet or what or his yeah, blood brother's yeah. planet i mean I, I, I to me that was just sort of like a bunch of ooky kabuki nonsense and it, <laughs> it didn't feel like star trek to me it felt like oh gosh this is going to go down as one of those uh you know gates mcfadden with the irish ghost episode um, <laughs> not that just, bad well maybe not quite that bad but but I, i'll be honest i i never understood what was going on in any of those scenes at any point during those scenes when whenever they were doing all their mind melding and and the creatures were flying around. I just sort of went with it because there was enough other interesting stuff going on around it, but that was like a low point of the season for me. Um, unfortunately, it involved book, but otherwise I think book is a great character as well. Uh, how about Sarah? What'd you think of the new characters? I thought they were great. Um, I think that the uh, opening scene with the introduction of book, I feel like that actually made a lot of sense because from book's perspective, he probably believes that this woman is either Emerald chain or, you know, is otherwise trying to get after his cargo. And, um, you know, so it makes sense that there would be some initial distrust. Um, and I think that that relationship blossomed really beautifully. And um, I, I I think it's nice to, to give Burnham a healthy romance um, after everything that happened with Ash. Um, you know, I think I, I was kind of worried for a while there that she would sort of always be suffering, you know, or that they would kill off book this season. Um, so I think that they, you know, had a nice refresher this season that she's still going through a lot. She's still struggling, um, but she's not, you know, losing people again and again and again. Um, and I loved, I loved the Adira thing with the Trill. Uh, I think that episode, Forget Me Not, was probably my favorite of the season. Yeah, it makes me cry great. every time. I've seen it three times. And um, I I love the idea of the trill. It's such a great idea for an alien species because you have the ability to, you know, much like uh, Vulcans with their katra, except much more literally, carry multiple generations of individuals living within you with all of their memories and how you can kind of create uh, a, you know, I hate to use this as a metaphor, but the quote unquote idea of Mary Sue and the bastardization of that idea on the internet. But you have, you can have all these characters that plausibly can play the cello and speak seven languages because they have eight people inside of them. And I think it's a really cool idea. I often wish every time there's a trill episode in Star Trek, I'm like, why don't we have more trill episodes? I love these. So yeah, I really, uh, I love those characters. Did- did, did you, Sarah, did you watch every episode three times or did you watch that one more than the others? <laughs> uh, well, part of it is that throughout, like I rewatched all the episodes uh, yesterday and the day before to prepare for this. Um, but each, when each episode would come out on Thursday, it would come out at like noon or something. And I always watched it immediately while Jason does stuff on his computer downstairs, my partner. And so I would always rewatch it with him later on. But like I can't, I can't be expected to wait eight hours till he's ready <laughs> to watch it at night. So I always ended up watching each episode twice. <laughs> yeah, I. You know, it's funny. I, I also, I actually burst into tears when, uh, when Adira started listing her names 
Like, yeah. I don't know why they, they had set that up. Like yeah. I was totally manipulated by the writing, but like in that moment, when she starts listing her names, I just lost it. But I also, I have to say, I am really, really fascinated to see what is going to happen next with gray, the way they leave that at the end. Yeah. It's like they've explored artificial life forms. They've explored um, holographic life forms in, in, in previous series, it seems like now we're going to get some sort of ghostly life form because they, they say to him partic- in particular, we're going to find out some way to make it so that we can always see you. And, and I think it's an interesting kind of, it, it's not just sort of like uh, just something out of left field either. Cause I think it builds in an interesting way on some of the trill uh, stuff that we've seen in other seasons. I mean, we see Jadzia Dax at one point has one of her previous hosts, um, you know, basically try to kill her or or try to force her to become a murderer. And so they obviously still do exert a certain amount of a will of their own, even after they die on, on some sense or in some sense. And I think that because Adira is a human, you know, there may be something going on in her physiology that's allowing these previous host to kind of manifest in different ways than they would with a trill. And so we have this possibility of him existing outside of her mind, uh, you know, obviously to her, but then to others as well. And, and the, the, the holographic projectors on the, on the dilithium planet recognized it as a separate life form, which was interesting to me and, and gave it a, you know, a form there. I mean, so I'm just really fascinated to see where they're going with that. I mean, it, they might drop the ball and it might end up being goofy, but I, it'd be interesting to see what they do. Yeah. Just a quick correction. Cause it is a plot point out, outside of their mind, not outside of her mind, because that initially she's identified. She, uh, the other characters identify her as female, but eventually she uh, says that she prefers they, them pronouns. Right. Exactly. Right. She, she does. Well, you would say they, they do, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that they, uh, might have chosen to have that conversation between um, Adira and Stamets earlier when we meet the Adira character, like the first time that somebody attempts to misgender them, um, you know, to have that conversation happen immediately because it's almost, it almost was confusing for, as a fan to, you know, then have to sort of change the the pronoun. Uh, But I, I think that, you know, I could, totally see like there was a lot of conversation on twitter uh, around that episode by the transgender trekkie community and the social justice trekkie community and you know there were opinions on both sides but i think what was clear is that the writers obviously considered this at length should we just have them arrive on set as them and not discuss it and treat it like it's totally accepted or you know which would would signal this hopeful future where it's not a big deal or should we have the opportunity to have that those conversations happen and have the the cool thing be that Stamets responds as he should uh you know with total like oh okay I'm so sorry that's that's great um and so I feel like you know they probably decided it was better to have the conversation to sort of allow it to be an issue or point of discussion that references us you know like should we should we reference what's going on in the modern era or not and i think that that they ultimately made the right decision however i do think that that conversation should have happened earlier well i also think it should have happened earlier because it it leads to the possibility of confusion as to whether or not this is something uh 
you know, a choice that Adira has made because that's how they want to be recognized, or if it's a choice that Adira made because of what uh, her, her, her exposure to her previous hosts, you know, it allows for that misinterpretation. And I think if they had had it happen before they find out about their other previous hosts, then it would have been clearer that it was simply a, you know, uh, a personal thing rather than a trill thing. Yeah, I think they they were trying to work with the metaphor that right. that it it's it's they them literally, uh, which is a nice you know a, a nice change, but I I do think that in some respects you know it didn't quite work. <laughs> so, so so Sarah, so you're saying that because I was a little confused about this was, um, the the gender neutral pronouns was this something like accepted or not accepted within the Federation or within Trill society. Like it, it wasn't clear because I would have expected this far in the future and in the Federation and everything that it would be, you know, it wouldn't be something that you would feel um, hesitant to bring up. Um, so I was a little confused if that was a Trill thing or a future Federation thing or just a communicating with a contemporary audience thing. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, that's partly why I feel like they should have had that conversation within the first five minutes of meeting the character, because it it was just sort of this weird thing that had happened later with as as this conversation that happened between them and Stamets, uh, as if it's the secret that is now known by Stamets and Culber. Um, you know, it, it's just it's sort of mixing your 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 messages a little bit. But I do think that they wanted to capitalize on the metaphor of trill being multiple people and that the they them works on that level as this cool poetic part of you know what it feels like or what it must feel like to be transgender um but uh yeah i just feel like honestly an editing thing you know that if they had pulled that out earlier that even now as we're discussing it we are unconsciously slipping some of us into calling them she uh just because that was how you know, they were originally introduced and it can be a little bit confusing. And so it muddies the message a little bit. And I think that it would have been a better message if they had just had them had that conversation earlier and not with just Stamets, but with, you know, maybe the whole crew was there. I don't know. But it, it was, it did feel a little muddier than, than it should have been. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's uh, move on into the sort of the uh, the second half of the show. Um, like I said, I mean, I really liked the show overall. I really liked the character dynamics. I actually really liked the, that sort of, um, Adira and Culber and, uh, Stamets, uh, form kind of this family unit. I found that really, it's adorable, really touching. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I guess I did have, I, I will say I did have some problems with the, the finale. Um, and, um, we can get into that. But I guess um, I guess does anyone have anything else that they wanted to bring up um, that happens before the the finale? Can we maybe talk a little bit about the Terra Prime two parter? Sure, sure. Um, because I mean, in in some ways, th- those were some of my favorite episodes of the season. Even though, um, so th- these are episodes where um, uh, Giorgio um, in, through the whole season, she's clearly been dealing with some sort of mysterious. Um, 
uh, ailment where she's like flashing back. And then as it develops, actually, there's like this weird kind of very unsettling effect where her body starts to like, I'm not even sure how to describe it, but it sort of distorts. Um, Goes out of phase. Yeah. And and so what we find out is that um, there's this idea essentially that your, I guess your molecules, your atoms or something, they want to be in the correct universe and the correct time. And you can be in the wrong universe or you can be at the wrong time, but to do both like really messes you up. <laughs> and um, which was one of those ideas where you're kind of like, mm, this, this is a lot to be sort of just dumping on us. And, and I, I feel like it's one of those moments where you kind of feel the writers kind of pushing things into place because you, you, at least if, if you've been kind of following the production, you know that part of the idea is to set Giorgio up for her own spinoff series. Um, and so they're trying to, you know, get everything into place. Um, and so I didn't completely buy that explanation, but uh, I thought that everything that followed it was really great. They brought back the Guardian of Forever, um, which is just an amazing reveal. And just the whole sequence that takes place in the the, uh, the mirror universe, I thought was was really, really well done. And partly because Giorgio is one of my favorite characters. So even though I felt like the setup was a little bit rushed, I enjoyed so much of, of what followed, which I think it's, it's in, in miniature a lot of my feelings about a lot of the things that happen in Discovery. See, I thought it was actually kind of interesting that they had that reason for her to not be able to stay in the future. Um, and it's, it sort of amazes me that after hundreds and hundreds of episodes of Star Trek, that that doesn't conflict with some other piece of the war or something. That, they, you know, that there haven't been other characters who from the dark, from the mirror universe, who also traveled through time and then ended up staying in the new time. Um, at least I don't know. Maybe there is that, but not that I know of. But um, I don't know. I, I feel like if you have to have some reason why she can't stay with the rest of the crew, that wasn't that didn't seem too bad, bad yeah. of a reason yeah, to me. Yeah, I mean, it didn't seem like a bad reason so much. It seemed clearly constructed to have her not stay with the rest of the crew. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I like, uh, you know, like the, the, all the dark mirror universe stuff I think is awesome. And I, I felt that way in previous seasons and, um, yeah, just, it's just really fun seeing these sort of, you know, black uniforms and, and the super like game of Thrones kind of, although it does, it is kind of hard for me to imagine that all these characters have managed to stay alive this long, <laughs> give, give, given how, how much backstabbing there is and everything. But, um, uh, it, it's certainly cool. I was definitely like riveted for for those episodes. Yeah, I thought the second of the two parter in particular was just. I, I thought it was Giorgio's best episode of the of the whole series. I mean, it, it was just great, um, really emotionally powerful, and a lot more. Obviously, because of her character's journey, it makes sense that it's more nuanced. But it was definitely more of a nuanced uh, performance uh, than we typically get from Giorgio, and I don't blame Michelle Yeoh for that. I think the writing often kind of, they try to make her seem like this, you know, mustache twirling villain who's like in the wrong place at the wrong time. But, you know, like it, it was a much more nuanced, uh, the way they, they wrote her in that. And she did a great job, del- you know, delivering those scenes. Yeah. I am going to miss her on this show though. Cause I feel like, you know, cause the rest of the crew is so nice. And then to have this one person who's so arrogant and cantankerous and everything, although we, we see that, that's a you know a um sort of a mask you know like mm-hmm. that's not her 
genuine. I mean, it's not her 100% genuine personality. It's like something that she affects for We still for have Jet Reno. Reasons. She's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> um, but I am going to miss uh, uh, miss that character on the show. Um, so, yeah, anything else before we get to the finale? Nope. Go ahead. Are you including <laughs> right. the Sukal stuff in the finale as part of the finale? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then we're good. Yeah, we the, the two part finale. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. I, <laughs> so, so in the finale, um, it turns out that there's this um, sort of crime boss named Osira. And she wants her. She wants to get her hands on the spore drive, the Discovery's spore drive. And this all comes to a head when they are tracked down the source of the burn, this disaster that destroyed all of the dilithium. And it turns out there's basically there's this incredibly dangerous nebula, and somewhere in it is this planet made almost entirely out of dilithium. And there's a Kelpian who's the same alien uh, alien species as Saru who has grown up in an entirely constructed holographic environment um, because uh, that his, his mother set up for him before she died. And somehow because he uh, was born in such close proximity to all this radiation and all this dilithium, uh, he, if, when he, um, if he has an a, extreme emotional trauma, it, that's what caused the burn. It released this sort of, you know, subspace dilithium destroying wave throughout the galaxy. Um, and, um, I, I, I don't know. There were, there was stuff, there was stuff about this that I liked, but I felt like the fact that when the characters, um, beam down to interact with this, um, with this Kelpian, that they all like change what alien type they appear to be. That seems sort of weird to me. Um, and then Osira's plan as it develops is that she is going to get her hands on the discovery in order to negotiate a, like basically a peace treaty with the Federation. And that seems super weird to me. It seems like a, a really bad plan that involved an enormous amount of personal risk on her part for no great chance of a, uh, of success. Um, so, uh, so Chris. Do you agree or disagree? With <laughs> well, my... there's a lot you've said. <laughs> I agree with a lot of it. I, I disagree with some of it. Um, just to tackle an easy thing first. Uh, yeah, I don't necessarily, unless there's something I miss, I don't know why the computer had to change their races, particularly because they're all members of races that the Kelpian would have already been familiar with. So it's not like they needed to accommodate his comfort level by doing that. It just seemed... Uh, it seemed like it was basically contrived so they could let us all see Doug Jones without makeup. Um, and he did a great job. He did. Yes. He did. But yeah, I mean, plot wise and story wise, I don't know why that had to happen. It seems odd. Um, in terms, I'll just talk about one other thing and then I'll let some other people chime in. But, you know, so in terms of the uh, the negotiations that are taking place between Vance and um, uh, I can't remember the. Osira. Osira. Yeah. Um, so. She, you know, I was never a hundred percent sure if she was negotiating in good faith or if the whole thing was just a ploy. Like, it seemed like 
at certain times, especially because we have this lie detector character, you know, holograph there that, that is telling us she's telling the truth, that she actually wanted this deal to go through. Now, obviously, you know, if it went through the way that she wanted it to, that she would have been in a far more, you know, advantageous position than if it went through in some other way with the Federation just sort of like reclaiming their place in the in the uh in the galaxy. But I I uh I, I don't know. I mean, I think a, a lot of whether or not it seemed like she was taking too big of a risk it depends on whether or not she was negotiating in good faith or if it was just simply a distraction for them to somehow, you know, steal the spore drive. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm but just... They dense, already but, had the spore drive. Well, that's the, well, yeah, but they wanted... See, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I found it a little confusing what everybody's motivations were going into that. I, I My assumption is on some level she was negotiating in good faith. I don't know whatever everyone else thinks about that. That's what I assumed. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that Vance had the response that he did and said, you're going to need to, you know, you're going to need to face justice for all the many crimes you've committed. And we can't just simply move forward and forgive and forget. So that's like that he made that a sticking point. And part of it, I think that you know, that showed that he was still going to try to do everything he could to, to, to remain true to the sort of, you know, ideals of the Federation and not just compromise with someone who had committed so many atrocities. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It was a, it was a complicated sort of scene. And, And I think, you know, the fact that it's going on against the backdrop of like crazy space battles and, you know, die hard taking back the ship uh maneuvers and all the rest of it like you know it it made it all just sort of like blur past me to be honest and i was just sort of like all right so this is happening let me just you know i'll watch this scene and then we'll see what happens on the ship well so how about anthony did that did that make any sense to you it made enough sense to me that like to her that i assumed that yeah she was essentially um being honest about her motivations and that she's a she's just continuing doing what she's always done, which is sort of like capitalist empire building. And that, that she saw, um, you know, stealing the sport drive and using that, like her um, capturing uh, discovery and holding its crew hostage as leverage in this negotiation to expand the chain and, and make the Federation part of the chain. Um, so I, I agree that like, you, I guess maybe if we went step by step in this plan, we might say, I don't know, are there like less dangerous ways to accomplish the same goals like maybe but i i bought that part of it and i particularly liked vance's response about how yes we are in this um you know we're, we're in this world where everyone's had to make hard choices and i and you know that that the federation and starfleet have had to make hard choices but this there's still like principles that we have to stick to. And then they have this whole argument where she says, you know, you've got to let go of the past. And that, that he's like, no, 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 the only way we can move forward is by like sort of a real reckoning with what you've done. And and so there's so many things in that scene that I liked, even though the, the plan itself, I was, I was a little like fuzzy on it. And then there was a, a certain element of, oh, are we, are we supposed to be really invested in now, uh, you know, the discovery crew stopping the chain from joining with the Federation? Are we really against that? Um, but I think part of the, the confusion for me as well was that I liked the the revelation of sort of that, like, you know, almost any Star Trek character, um, except maybe like the Borg, like there's 
usually some sort of like, or even with the Borg, there's like some sort of motivation there, right? And that there are very few villains who are just pure. Um, and particularly when you start to get to like the different like alien races and societies, there's usually some sort of rationality there. And the idea that, okay, well, we had to be these like ruthless capitalists in order to sort of claw our way back to some semblance of civilization, I found really compelling. But for so much of the rest of the show, the chain is just we show up and we are, you know, mustache twirling villains and we feed our incompetent nephews to the aliens and we threaten, you know, these uh, planet with famine. And so I, I felt like it was a little bit of a missed opportunity that I thought like having the chain as, as like a real, you know, this idea of almost like, oh, the capitalists are the villains in this season was compelling, but it was sort of, a, it was underdeveloped compared to sort of the more traditional kind of Hollywood villain stuff that came before it. And that it kind of then went back into as it's, there's sort of the typical kind of, yeah. you know, fist, fisticuff resolution. Well, I agree with you that I thought it was it was a really interesting idea that the vil- what the villain wants is for the Federation to like accept capitalism or like you know merge with a capitalist empire. Um, and I, I, I thought and I liked the sort of moral ambiguity that there was that scientist who was like, no, like Osiris, she's been good to me. Like you know, she's done a lot of good things. Like that was it was just like the part of the plan that involves like taking the ship hostage as part of the negotiation seems to make the negotiation much less likely to succeed uh, rather than more likely to succeed and seems to involve an incredibly high risk that she's going to get blown out of an airlock or something at some point, you know, which is exactly what happens. And so I I felt like there needed to be like something because like, you know, like what's what's going to like Vance is going to sign the contract or whatever. And then she returns all the discovery crew. And then like, what's the Federation's incentive at that point for sticking to the deal? Right. Like, so I felt like there had to be some more like, you know, she's like, you need to give me a pardon and I'm going to release one Discovery crew member every month or something for the next five years or something as we work out this merger. Like, you know, it just needed to be, I don't it just needed me like better thought through, I thought. But uh, but I want to get Sarah back in here. Sarah, what'd you think of this whole? I totally, like stuff? I totally bought it. I, I honestly feel like, you know, one of the things that makes Osira interesting is that she genuinely believes that she's right. And I think that what they were trying to show there with Eli, which is a wonderful, wonderful way to have a, a lie detector holographic character. I thought it was hilarious. Um, I think <laughs> yeah. they were, they were, they put Eli there to make us understand that from her perspective, she was telling the truth. And what I think they were trying to say there is that she, by her very nature, does not in the slightest understand what the Federation exists for, you know, what their ideals are. She, she, you know, like a lot of authoritarian people like her believe that everyone is secretly privately, just like them. You know, you, you see this a lot with Donald Trump and his sort of projections, endlessly projecting his horrible behaviors onto other people as if, you know, everyone because I'm amazing, everyone must be secretly as bad as me. And I think that she believes that she is presenting Vance with a genuinely uh, tempting option. And you can see him tempted now and then. And I think it's, it was really well done to me because, um, you know, the Federation would be vulnerable to making alliances like that 
to keep them alive, to help them thrive, but at what cost and what would, what would, how would it change the Federation if he were to proceed? And I think it's one of the ways that they really showcased that Vance is this great character um, because, and I genuinely hope that he is in forthcoming seasons uh, for that. But I think that you can see him treading that line really well um, between temptation and sticking to his guns and understanding that he does not want to do this at the expense of costing the Federation what it is and what it most values. So yeah, to me, it, it, it worked beautifully. I guess, yeah, I don't remember to what extent she underlines this, but I feel like it should have been maybe emphasized more, like all the good things from, you know, like her pitch is like, here's all the good things that the Federation would be able to accomplish with my resources, with my financial resources behind it. And then it would maybe seem less like of a doomed, uh, you know, enterprise from the beginning. Um but um, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to like spend too much time on that. But that that was a big sticking point for me. Um, I guess the other <laughs> the other big sticking point was the um, there's this part where like what was the bad guy's name Zara or something? Um, mm-hmm. He's like fighting book on this like turbo lift that's flying through this like uh, yeah gigantic like empty space, <laughs> which is. Apparently, like pressurized and has atmosphere and everything, and I don't know where on the ship this is supposed to be or what purpose it's supposed to serve, but it seems that was just incredibly strange to me. That just to me seemed like special effects run amok. I mean, it it was special effects over substance. I I I take it we were supposed to assume that's kind of behind the scenes of what's going on in the turbo lifts, but like you know, first of all, it seemed like they traveled a hundred miles in that turbo, (laughs) Um, and second of all, what. You know, like where because I mean, you know, it's not like it was an elevator shaft. It was a huge space. Like where in the ship, like we, you know, would you devote that much space to, to like hundred? It looked like there were like you know dozens of other turbo lifts all zipping around in that same area. That was ridiculous. I mean, that was one of the true only moments where I was thrown out of the show, like laughing. Like this is absurd. I think some uh, producer probably watched Monsters, Inc. And was like, <laughs> got to put this in the finale. And they're like, no. <laughs> but, but to be honest, just to build on it, I, like, I actually think that, that uh, again, I think in that last episode, uh, uh, sort of everything on that sort of taking back the ship thing was a bit goofy and made no sense. I mean, this sort of overly elaborate Bond villain plot to slowly suffocate them in the in the decks that they were on. It's like, we know from other series they could have just flooded those decks with poison gas and killed them instantly. Like, why why use some convoluted method where they're slowly going to depressurize it, you know, over 40 minutes and or whatever it was? And well, they, them- they were using them as leverage. So if they if they had killed okay. them instantly, they lose their leverage. I I guess. Were they still, though, when she made that call? I guess maybe they were. Okay. It, it was confusing because she definitely says to um, Burnham, John like, McClane was oh, we're not, we're not, like, we're not <laughs> negotiating about the crew. The crew is definitely going to die. The only thing we're negotiating over is Book because, like, um, Book is the only person who might survive this. Well, you know, either way, it, it, it seemed. And then, of course, you have the... It, conveniently, like moments before you realize that they're not going to all be able to hold their breath, a character reveals that they free dive as a kid and they can hold their breath longer <laughs> than everyone else. It's like it was just a little clunky, the writing there kind of coming through. 
Also, like in contrast to the Jeffries tubes, man, I would not be want to be in those Jeffries tubes knowing that if a fire breaks out, it's going to immediately evacuate the, all the atmosphere and flush everything out into outer space. It seems like a pretty uh, overreaction to a fire breaking out. Yeah, I don't know. But it was I mean, it was fun to watch, but it was a bit a bit goofy at, at times. Yeah, it was just like because the rest of the show was so good leading up to that. And then it just it was it was giving me flashbacks to Star Trek Nemesis, where I, I don't <laughs> even remember. Isn't it like Rikers fighting some like bat monster? And then they're like over some like thousand foot drop. And you're like, where? Yeah. Where is this in the ship? Like, like what is yeah, the yeah, purpose yeah. of this? Star Trek like, really struggles with with deciding what size its its objects are sometimes. Like, you know, in even in, in Star Trek for the voyage home, which is obviously my favorite Star Trek ever, you have a ship landing in central park or not central park a golden gate park Mm -hmm. and leaving this you know this imprint on the grass that looks like the size of a smart car and this is supposed to be a ship that's big enough to hold not only the crew and sleeping quarters and all of that but also have enough space to house two humpback whales in an in a mini aquarium and it it looks like this tiny little ship. And so you're like, yeah. Star Trek has always sort of struggled with this. And I'm not sure. Well, I, I thought that. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, this sorry, this is kind of a nitpicky. But I thought that was just the landing. <laughs> that's like the impression of the landing gear. That's not the impression of the ship. Am yeah, I remembering but, that wrong? But you're you're still seeing a a bottom part that is significantly proportionately smaller than it should be. Okay. Hmm. Well, and that whole movie has a hard time conceptualizing how much space humpback whales would need because you couldn't keep them in the Monterey Bay Aquarium either. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but anyway, but those those sort of missteps or possible missteps notwithstanding, I mean, you know, I I, I still it wasn't enough to, you know, uh, I still overall have a very positive impression of the the whole season and even of the finale. I mean, I think it, it set up some, you know, I'm very interested to see where where we go next. Um, you know, with with uh, it, it was maybe a little contrived the way that they have Burnham end up back in the captain's or not back, but in the captain's chair. Um, you know, with Saru and everyone else, like it was sort of like all the pieces kind of moving at the same time to let that happen. But you know, whatever. I'm just interested to see now as we're going to start to you know re-explore uh, space again with them i feel like they were they were sort of talking about that all season basically and that 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 is ultimately where they were going with all of these conversations about who should lead what command what the nature of command is you know what makes a good leader and i think that burnham is compulsively a good leader to the point where she cannot help herself breaking the rules when she absolutely believes that she is right and she is exactly like kirk in that sense and, you know, a lot of the complaints on Twitter from angry fanboys are completely willing to accept that and completely unwilling to accept the exact same things, you know, happening with Burnham. Uh, and so there's a lot of uh, double standards going on. The same thing happened with when, you know, Tilly was was uh, sort of given temporary command. You know, in, in the Kelvin films, Kirk was given uh, temporary captaincy and he was not only a still in still technically hadn't graduated from Starfleet Academy at that time was still a cadet, but he was also 
had been recently reprimanded, like the decision had been outcome. So it's this is something that we've seen over and over again. And and I do sort of con- continually watch and I grow very tired of seeing uh, these characters being treated to double standards by Trekkies who, you know, are totally okay with these things when they happen to Kirk, when they happen to all these other characters and are not okay when they happen to Michael or Tilly. I thought I thought it was funny, though, Sarah, when you said you described the Discovery haters and I think it's it's just kind of funny to me that we're in season three and people are like, people are like, I just watched episode 30 and I hated it as much as I hated the other the past they watch it. episodes. They, watch, they, they interviewed Jonathan Frakes and Jonathan Frakes started laughing his ass off and he said, that's the thing. They keep watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Tilly was great in her role. I mean, I yeah. think she, she, she certainly rose to the occasion. Um, and you understood, I thought, the reasons why Saru picked her. I mean, and, you know, it, it yeah. made perfect sense. And they definitely set up Burn. I mean, you know, you have Giorgio basically telling her, you need to be a captain. You know, before those are her last words to her before she goes through the, you know, the time portal. Um, yeah. So, you know, clearly that's where we were headed. I, I just felt like, you know, we got to the sort of epilogue of the season finale and it was just like, oh, crap, we need to set that up. And all of a sudden, three things happened all at once where it's like, yep, you're captain now. <laughs> I do think that Discovery in general struggles with the the denouement. Like you always you yeah. always feel like, you know, the very last episode of the first season when the Klingon war is resolved. Uh, you know, you want more of those scenes of you want to see the conversation happening between Saru and Michael about uh Saru admitting that that Michael is the better leader. Uh, that, you know, and, and, and telling her, telling him that, no, he did a great job. Uh, and, you know, you want to see that struggle and not, not hear about it later in, you know, sort of exposition between her and Vance. So I do think that, you know, and it, it, again, it's sort of, you, it's a great show and you always sort of wish that you could see a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. The stuff between Michael and her mother was great this season, but I really wanted somebody to say either, either her or her mother, you know, at some point when the universe is not at risk of ending, it would be nice to chat, sit down, have a cup of coffee, <laughs> hang out. Yeah. You know, they yeah. never get to yeah. do that, and nobody ever says it. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> I actually, I actually wanted to mention the the part where um where Michael demands the sort of Vulcan science trial. That was probably my favorite part of the show. Maybe I, I don't know. I just really like the sort of courtroom aspect and especially the the fact that it's her mom and her lawyer who's just pledged to tell the brutally honest truth about her like all that stuff i just thought was was so interesting and that's kind of you know that's that's one of the big things i watch star trek for and and science science fiction for generally is is sort of interesting you know imagined cultural practices like that yeah um and and the vulcans i just think are cool you yeah. know and the logic and all that stuff and it was a nice callback to Picard with, you know, the brutal honesty cult. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. We didn't even talk about the the Unification Three thing with the with Spock yeah. and all of that. That was that was all really beautiful. Yeah. Totally. And it was one of the as we were just saying at the very beginning of this, uh, you know, that it was one of the times where they actually did explore how the how the societies had changed. And I thought it was really, really fascinating. And, and probably, I don't know, I mean, that was part of why I found that episode so interesting. Uh, Dave, I know you you liked it too. Seeing the way that the, the different 
um, Vulcan versus uh, Romulan influences colored the way the proceeding was happening or colored the way that their, you know, their government operated or the way that they trusted or didn't trust other cultures and, um, you know, the emphasis they placed on logic versus, you know, uh, emotion. I, it, it, you know, I, I thought that was phenomenal. That was really good. I guess, you know, um, Chris and Anthony, you, you guys didn't join us for our um, Picard panel. So I guess I'd just be curious to hear how did you how do you think that this compares to Picard and kind of what do you think about the the, the direction that the overall sort of Star Trek universe is going? You want to go, Anthony? Sure. Um, I would say that, I mean, one thing that was really striking to me was how we had two different shows this year that were about, in a lot of ways, the the in one case the failures and the other case the disintegration of the federation and and it's the the arc of both seasons it seems to me are about this idea of let's bring the federation back to its former self in in Picard's case more of an ethical standard and and in Discovery's case it's more like no let's literally try to stitch these different planets back together um and and in that sense it felt a little bit like oh i are we seeing kind of i mean i understand like um or I'm, I'm really interested in this idea that the Federation is not just something that happens, is not sort of an eternal utopia, but it's something that has to be continually earned. But having them kind of come out um, so close to each other to me felt in some ways like there were some thematic ep- echoes that I don't know did a lot of favors to both shows. But I also thought Discovery's second season, I mean, third season was stronger than than Picard. And so in that sense, I just sort of like, all right, I'll just focus on the on the Discovery version of it. Um, and, and in general, I, I feel like I can't say that I'm terribly excited about the idea that there's going to be, as um, Alex Kurtzman, one of the executive producers has said, the goal is like, so that there's a new Star Trek coming out like every week. And so like discovery ends and then the new season of another show begins and they've just got, you know, this whole kind of constant uh, flywheel of, of content of Star Trek content. Like I think that starts to get back to what um, Sarah was talking about, where it's like the, the kind of Dolly, the sheep moment where you're just like, I don't know how good any, all of this stuff can be. Like, I, I really like Discovery. I like the fact that it's con- consistently reinventing itself. I'm not sure that I need to see every single piece of Star Trek content that the, um, you know, that the producers can come up with right now. Well, I feel like they probably, I, I imagine CBS All Access feels like they don't have a choice because I, I feel like probably lots of people sign up and watch the new Star Trek and then cancel their hmm. subscription. And so they probably feel like if we just had Star Trek on all the time, then people <laughs> would just be, would just not be canceling this. Yeah, I understand right. from commercial reasons. And, you know, I'm not going to criticize them when like Disney Plus is saying, okay, we're going to do 10 Marvel shows and 10 Star Wars shows. And again, I have the same reaction to all of that, which is like, I understand from a business perspective why you're doing it. As like a fan uh, from an artistic perspective, I don't think that's necessarily great on any of those counts. I think it's it's, as long as they have new Star writers, 15. like as long as they have new <laughs> writers and different creatives working on it, I think it's fine. I think the problem is when you become sort of the, you know, Rick Berman, Michael Pillar club, and it's always the same showrunners. And, you know, uh, other than Kurtzman in- involvement, we see, you know, new writers coming in all the time. And I think that is one way that will really help it. Because as a very hardcore Trekkie, I am like here for it. Like the more, the better. 
infinite diversity, infinite combinations. Here for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm totally on board. They could make as many this way. As long as the quality continues to be maintained that we've been yeah. seeing from Discovery and uh and Picard, then I'm here for it as long as that is maintained. You know, if it starts yeah. to dip and starts to become, you know, pointless and, and just silly, then then that's one thing. I mean, I, I agree that uh I, I loved Picard. Um, I can't wait for season two, which I'm expecting I'll actually like even more. Um, I, I agree that um, Discovery season three was stronger in the end than Picard season one. But I think, you, you know, season one of almost any Star Trek series is never their yeah. strongest season. So I think the fact that Picard, that I loved it as much as I did, even though it was season one, uh, says a lot. Um, yeah. and, and, and and I think it, it was great. So. You know, I've I've even watched. I, I I hesitated, but then I decided to jump in and watch the Lower Decks cartoon because for me, I, I generally don't like when something that I take as seriously as I take Star Trek kind of takes a comedic approach to things. Um, you know, like I hate when shows that I watch will have like, oh, this week a special musical episode. You know, things like that it just destroys a show for me. Like I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. <laughs> However, once I got over that weird uh, hang up of mine. Yeah, I even enjoyed Lower Decks. I thought it was great. And I thought in the end, it, it, it you know, it explored, it, it was interesting. I, I thought it was yeah. interesting in its own right. You know, it's it's obviously a much slighter show than than these more dramatic, serious shows. But um, it did a lot of great things. And I even enjoyed yeah. that. So yeah, the more the merrier. Yeah, and I think people, one of, the thing, one of the things people don't understand about Lower Decks is that it exists to almost make fun of Star Trek. And if you love Star right. Trek, you love making fun of it. Sure. And it makes fun of 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 Trekkies. It makes fun of the community and I, I'm here for it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't watched, I've been trying to decide whether I should watch that or not, but um, yeah, if you guys liked it, maybe it's very uh, light and fun. Like this, the speed is really hard to get used to. I, you know, I'm 41. I'm right on the edge. I'm like, Oh man, if they could just slow that down 20%. <laughs> yeah. Like there's, Sometimes I want to watch it right before bed because it's light, but I'm like, Oh man, my ears can't handle it. My old ears. I can't, they're talking too fast. The subtitles go by too quickly. I just, I need, I need them to slow it down 20%. So I'll often, you know, watch it <laughs> when it's earlier in the day when I can handle it. And I'd all, I also would say that if you're like me, like give it like, I watched the first episode and I was like, yeah, this is fine. I guess I'll watch another one. And then maybe a few days later, I watched another one and then I watched another one. And then, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden I binge watched it. You know, That's once exactly I got about, what happened to me, like t- once I got two or three episodes into it, all of a sudden it was like, okay, now this clicks. Now, now I I'm get what they're it. doing here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Hmm. All right. Well, maybe I'll check it out. Unfortunately, we're, we're all out of time for this episode. Yeah, okay. So uh, why don't we get some final thoughts in here? So, uh, so Anthony, final thoughts on season three of Star Trek Discovery? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I thought that, just going back to the beginning, that this is probably the best setup for almost any Star Trek show I can think of. Like that idea, like especially that the ending of that first episode where you find the one, this one guy who's been trying to keep the Federation going. I mean, I, that was one of several times during the season when I cried and the idea of discovery rebuilding the Federation and, and like really illustrating like what the Federation is for, I found so compelling. And so on the one hand, I think the show didn't quite live up to that sort of grand epic 
ambitious, complex thing that I created in my head after watching the uh, the first episode or two, but it was still really good and, and is either the best season of Discovery or ties with the second, maybe, because I, I, I liked Spock and Pike so much, but um, it, it, it wasn't quite what I wanted, but it was still very good, and so I, I still left very satisfied. Sarah, final thought. Um, I loved the John McClane stuff. I love it when Star Trek is just silly and decides to be silly for, you know, the sake of it. I love when it plays with us, the audience. I love when it decides that it's going to inject this very unrelated in so many ways, um, you know, little cultural reference and that everybody got it. I mean, the next morning on Twitter, somebody had tweeted, oh, my God, Star Trek finally has a Christmas episode. And, (laughs) you know, it was just like it was really joyful. And it was it was weirdly well-timed because... The, this season actually came out later than uh, anticipated, I think, because of the editing taking place in people's homes. It just took longer to put together. And so there were some delays with the release. And so the fact that that episode aired Christmas week, it was perfect. I, I was happy. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll, I, I heard that, you know, there was we've mentioned that uh, the Philippa Giorgio character was going to be in this um, Section 31 series. And I think that was supposed to be out already, but uh, it got delayed because of COVID. But I think they're I saw that they're they're kind of in the process of filming it now. Yeah. So so that'll be coming. Um, but uh, Chris, final thought. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I'd like to see in the uh, Section 31 thing something with uh, Dr. Bashir making an appearance. Yeah, he, that that would be fantastic if he could do that. I don't know what time she's actually going back to, but maybe he like if Bashir was somehow head of Section 31, that would be awesome. That'd anyway, be amazing. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, in terms of this, I'm I'm all on board for season four. Uh, you know, I can't wait for it to come out. So I don't, I don't know that I really have anything else to say beyond that. Yeah, and it has been greenlit. If 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 anyone doesn't know for yeah, season yeah. four, that's definitely happening. So, cool. yeah. yeah, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed this a lot. I mean, this really felt like Star Trek to me. I mean, like, um, you know, like, like I've said, you know, that uh, season one and um, Picard, like, uh, you know, felt like a little bit like off from Star Trek to me. But this totally felt Star Trek to me. And like I said, I really loved the crew dynamic. And like there was some goofy stuff that I've mentioned, but again, that's like that also made it feel like Star Trek to me. <laughs> so um, yeah, just overall, like it, I just loved the you know that we're actually you know pushing forward the story into the future and we're exploring strange new worlds and the crews getting along and you know learning to trust each other and, and everything. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be on board for season four as well. Um, but yes, yeah, so why, why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha. Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Christopher M. Savasco. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Woohoo! And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Christopher M. Savasco for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution... You can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. 
Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.